Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 7th, 2019. It's a Thursday. And this is episode 2376 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a good one for you today because you guys pretty much created it. This is a listener call show. It's where you pick the phone up and call 866-65-THINK. 866-65-THINK, you'll get a voice recording service. Uh, leave me your uh, question or your, your comment, and this is the rules. Call from a quiet place. Make sure you have some bars on the phone so that you actually have a good connection. Make your point or ask your question up front, bottom line up front, and give me the details. You'll be more likely to get through the screening process and end up on the air. And I would say about half of the calls in general, uh, sooner or later, do end up on the air. So this is probably the easiest way to uh, to get onto the show, it's definitely easier than the mail-in option, or the, I should say the email option, uh, just due to volume. Uh, today, here's what we're going to be talking about. We have another success story from a listener about buying their own home for cash, and I think it's, again, a first home, which is really awesome. A question about building fish ponds, kind of backyard fish ponds in really cold climates like Minnesota and Michigan and things like that. Uh, more on dealing with hard water. Guys, a plumber has some uh, tips and tips for you guys on that particular issue. And actually brings up a problem that even though I'm not a plumber, I have a solution to because it's one we use here. Food storage for those on the paleo slash keto lifestyle. Uh, a question on wood chipping. Is it worth the time, energy, and cost to, to chip wood or would we be better off just burning it and using the carbon? Uh, marking your tools for a work environment to prevent, prevent, I had to come up with a clever way to say this without saying stealing, accidental permanent borrowing, right? <laughs> uh, the glowing, the growing trend of red dot sites on duty and carry pistols. Somebody wants to know my opinion on that. Um, and then a question on making meat. How long do you keep it in the primary and secondary fermenters? And when do you decide it's time to bottle it? We'll get to all of that more right now, straight out of the gate. Let's go ahead and take our first one. This is a listener success story on um, home ownership. And I just want, like, you're going to hear him say something, and it's going to seem a little bit odd. So I had a very similar call last week, and I said, when I get a call from somebody in this audience, I just bought my first house for cash. It makes me as happy as when somebody hands me a, a bottle of Johnny Walker Blue Scotch, which is like the most expensive blended whiskey on planet Earth, and it is a fantastic bottle of Scotch to be given as a gift, and it makes me that happy. And now what he says won't sound completely off, you know, third third base or something if if you didn't hear last week's show. Uh, caller, go ahead. Tell us how you guys in your life created this really great step toward total financial freedom. Hey, Jack. Ivan from Saskatchewan, New Hampshire here. And you know what's better than a $250 bottle of scotch? Two bottles of $250 scotch. I, too, am just about to purchase a piece of land and build a house completely in cash. And I just wanted to call in and, and brag about that a little bit. Um, so the backstory story is, um, oh, before I go into that, I wanted to second the motion for an episode completely dedicated to 
um, responsible home ownership because I'm hopefully just about to go down that path. So please, I would love to see that. And the backstory is um, my wife and I recently overseas for a number number of years, um, pulling in the expat salary and um, just doing everything we could to live completely frugally, not cheap, but frugally. Um, we were living in, uh, you know, backyard bungalows of a um, of an Indian woman, uh, never paid more than 450 or $500 in rent, you know, programmed the GPS to avoid the tolls, cutting out all costs we could and just socking it away in the bank account, um, redirecting the disposable income towards more productive, cheaper activities like learning how to raise chickens or rabbits and um, just, you know, living frugally, saving as much as we can. And, um, you know, it is possible. And now we're in a great position um, to go uh, build our dream home for cash. So just wanted to call in and brag about that, doing it anonymously because I kind of feel uncomfortable talking about money. I'm happy for people to think I'm just sort of getting by like like most. Um, you know, I think people start looking at you differently when, you know, they realize you've got cash in the bank. But, um, yeah, so um, hopefully some encouragement for others. And um, thank you very much for the show. Bye-bye. What I want to point out that I think is really important for a lot of people out there trying to figure out how to make a go in life and uh, maybe not quite yet being to the point where you can even start taking the kind of steps that, that he talked about taking. Because even if you, you know, if you went down to as Spartan a lifestyle as, as he talked about, you'd be living better than you are. And I know there's points in life like that. But sooner or later, if you keep trying, you solve the income issue. Uh, and it, it's sometimes a lot easier to solve than people realize because it often doesn't need to be as big as people needs need, think it needs to be if you actually know why you're doing what you're doing and you're willing to make sacrifices. But kind of where I'm going with this is 10 years from now, this guy and his wife are going to be doing really well. I mean, even beyond where they are now. Because if you go into a home and you don't have a house payment... And you take that money and you channel it into your life and you use some of it for doing the things that you want to do in your life and setting up the systems you want in your life. And the other part of it, you just say, now, man, it's like having a, a house payment that actually goes into my retirement account. You are so far ahead of the average person in America, it's unbelievable. And there will be people 10 years, 15 years from now that will look at this couple and their kids if they choose to have them and talk about how they're privileged, and how they're so lucky. This is not privilege or luck. Privilege is something that you have that others don't, that you did not earn, that was simply given to you. That is the very definition of privilege. Um, and, and luck is something that the same thing happens to two people, and for one it's lucky, and for the other it's a disaster. We make our own luck. There, there is no doubt that there are times where things happen in our lives that we can only call them luck. Like, this is really bad luck, or this is really good luck. But the, the people that capitalize on the good luck, and actually see it that way, the people that see the bad luck and don't let it get them down and figure out actually maybe every adversarial thing that comes into your life actually can be an opportunity, uh, they do really, really well. A good friend of mine... Uh, just recently saw on Facebook that, that he lost a job, a really good job, too. And, you know, 
my response was, for the prepared person, a job loss is always an opportunity. This may be his luck. I think he was pretty comfortable where he was. Uh, I don't even understand why he's not there anymore, other than maybe a downsizing or something, because there's he's very, very good at what he does. But a lot of times when you do lose a job, you look back and go, that was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me, even though it didn't feel like that at the time. And the people that will look at these folks a few years from now and talk about how they're privileged and lucky are not willing to do what they did. They're not willing to spend a few years working outside of their country and living in a really modest abode and saving every penny and spending their time learning versus spending. They're not going to be willing to do all of those things. And then they'll turn around and talk about how this person is lucky. The person that, that, that declares this other individual to be lucky uh, seldom has worked as hard as the person he's talking about. They've seldom failed as often. They've seldom uh, sacrificed as much. They've seldom ever been willing to do what that person did to get where they are, but yet they are envious of them. This is where we actually get to, um, I'm not a religious man, but you know when you, talk, when you hear somebody talk about the, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. When people start to look at people as though what they have is by some fortune, of the stars or something like that. that they, they really shouldn't have it. They're just lucky, but yet they want it in their own life. That's where you get into true covetousness. There's nothing wrong with looking at a person that has a beautiful home and going, I want a house like that someday. Uh, what the problem is, is you go, they shouldn't have, I want their house. That's covetousness. That's covetousness. And it takes many forms. It can take the form of covetousness where you actually want their house for yourself individually, or collective covetousness, which we call socialism. If you ever wanted to really understand what socialism is, it's being collectively covetous. That's what it is. These people over here don't deserve what they have, and I'm not strong enough to take it from them individually, but if we all band together, we can make somebody else take it from them and give us all a piece. Somebody recently said something to the effect, I didn't comment somewhere, that a socialist is somebody that wants everything you have except your job. And I think there's some truth to that as well. And good good on you, dude, for getting this done. This does make my, my day. Coming toward the end of the week, it makes my week so far. Um, it's just awesome. And, and my challenge to everybody out there listening is, what are you willing to do to get what you want in life? especially you guys that are like 21, 22, 23 years old. It is never going to be easier than it is now to make a hard decision. It will get easier to live. It will get easier to be you. But it will never get easier for you to make a tough decision like, I'm going to go on the road for three years, stockpile every penny I can make, and buy my dream home. There's no time that it will be easier to make a decision like that than now. And you might say, well, I can't get that kind of a job. There will be no time that it will be easier to make the decision to get whatever it is you need to be able to make that decision and go do it than there is right now. If you are a young person, it, that is a hard decision to make when you're 38. It's a really hard decision to make when you're 47. You have so much freedom in your 20s, and we don't really appreciate it. 
Youth is wasted on the young. That'll come back around later in the show when we get to the song of the day. With that, let's go ahead and take our next one. This is a question on backyard pond building, which is something I really love. Hi, Jack. This is Evan calling from Wisconsin. My question is, uh, you talk about aquaponics and stuff. I'm looking to start maybe like a trout pond. I was wondering if you had any tips or tricks, being the problem is I live in Wisconsin, and it's negative 50 degrees yesterday. So just uh, looking for maybe some tips and tricks on how to start a trout pond, how to keep them alive in uh, this kind of weather. Thanks very much. Love the show. Talk to you later. Bye. So I, I appreciate brevity in a call, and I appreciate just cutting to the chase and getting to the point. This is one of those issues where it would be easier for me to answer this if I had more information. Like, do you have access to heavy equipment to dig a hole? Um, how big is the area you're planning to put this pond in? And uh, how, 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 how committed are you to this? Like, what is your budget? That type of thing. So, I'm going to talk about kind of two ways that this can probably be done. Let's talk about the easy way. The easy way is to understand that even when it is 40 degrees below zero at the surface, you know, five, six feet down into planet Earth, it is in the 50s because there's an Earth temperature there, right? Um, I, I, when I was a kid, my dad was bootlegging coal, and I worked in a bootleg coal hole. That's a real thing. I really did that for a while. Uh, he would pay me cash money to, to come up and help him for a few hours and do some of the grunt work. Of course, I guess it was all grunt work. And it was amazing that it could be 100 degrees outside, and it was about 50 degrees once you were in, into the mine. And it could be you know, 5 degrees outside, and you would sweat working in 50 degrees in the mine. Uh, and when you came out, it felt really cold or really hot. So, I mean, there is a, a certain amount of thermodynamics when it just comes to earth contact temperature. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, it was 40 or 50 below or whatever in Wisconsin. This was that polar vortex. It's not like it's not like you live on the tundra in Zone 2 in Alaska where you have regular, you regularly get that cold and you stay that cold. So if we just use depth here, we can solve this problem, and I would look to a depth of at least six feet, and eight would be better. And if you do that, you are going to be able to overwinter fish if the pond is big enough. And that's the other issue if we're going to take this approach. To be able to make a pond that's eight feet deep and not have the edges just plummet off like a cliff and have slope to your banks... It needs to be fairly large. I'm thinking in the neighborhood of about 60 feet. And that's a pretty small pond for a trout pond, by the way. You're looking to do something here that is, you know, it's a fish that really likes moving water. It likes cold water. It likes highly oxygenated water. But we can do this. We can make this worth. But we probably need a length of about 60 feet and a width of at least 20. So if you have that to work with, then I would get in an experienced pond builder with an excavator and find out, do you need to use bentonite? Do you have enough clay in your soil to just do it? Or do you need to even look at doing a very large pond liner, which can be done? And you know, if I was sitting with you, I could kind of draw this out for you, but I would try to d design this pond sort of kind of like a wave pool um, at 
an amusement park where when you if you were to walk into one end it's really shallow and it slowly gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and then it drops off really deep to the deep end and then it, in the pool it would stay that way but in your pond then you want to kind of come back up so you have this really big deep trench and then it kind of levels off to a plateau and then trails out to the other side so that nowhere along the edges does it just dive down even though at some point it does And then I would want to take, and I would want to get boulders, uh, big rocks from wherever you can get them, and in that that sh that shallow area of the pond, I would want to space those out so that you create a natural environment where these fish can move in uh, during the 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 time of the year where they they're active and in that type of thing. You can create you know a a whole ecosystem here. So you're talking about basically a tiny lake. I'd call it a pond. Uh, and, and very much like the types of ponds that Sepp Holzer builds uh, in the Kermaderoff, which is way colder than you're going to get. Uh, ben Falk has a couple ponds in uh, Vermont, in Mad River Valley. It gets as cold there as it gets where you are, I promise you. And it probably gets consistently cold there more. And he overwinters fish just fine. Not really trout, but I bet he could. He's got mostly bass and bluegills. And uh, they're not real big ponds. They're, they're kind of in the neighborhood of what I just gave you. And they're, they're well-designed. Ben's a great designer, but they're not even as designed as cleverly as I gave you. They're more like just fairly shallow ponds. I think they're probably about six feet in the middle. And, and he's able to overwinter there. So if you can get enough size, total volume of water, and depth, and create zones, shallow and deep, and shallow again... You won't have any problem, and you could probably do really well raising something like rainbows or, or brown trout. And if you, like, you know, in your state, there's probably a lot of places to fish for trout, and there's probably a lot of stocking going on. And a lot of times, I don't know what the size limits are where you are, but, like, when I was a kid, I don't know where they are in Pennsylvania now, but we were allowed, like, eight trout, I think seven inches was the minimum, which is just ridiculous. I would never try to eat a seven-inch trout. But they just stocked every year, so they really didn't care. And I think they meant the minimum based on what they, you know, what they could produce. Uh, but if you had a pond like that, you had access, you could go catch your own fish and bring them home with an aerator and just stock your pond that way. So that could be kind of cool. And I would try to do a multi-species pond as well, not just rely on trout. See what does best for you. Yellow perch are a fantastic table fish, and I would I would surmise that yellow perch will breed for you. And if you stock that pond with small bluegills, they will eat the hell out of tiny bluegills. I know for a fact because that was our number one bait for yellow perch in the spring at a reservoir I used to sneak into fish because it was a township water reservoir. And we would trap little bitty bluegills. I'm talking about, you know, like an inch long, like tiny. And, uh, man, about four foot down off of a float, those yellow perch, we caught yellow perch, it would have been nice whiting. So that might be another fish to look at. And just, you don't talk about high-quality food. Uh, I, I love trout. I would take yellow perch over trout any day. So that would be another way to look at it. Now, if you want to do it more of a conventional small pond, I think you can. Your, your population is going to be limited. But then what you want to do, you still want to get in the ground, and you still want to be in a neighborhood of like four foot at your deepest spot. And then what you want to look for is something called a solar cover. And if you, during the winter, cover your pond with a solar cover, you probably won't ever have the top even freeze. 
and you're certainly going to keep it thought out most of the time. And be, you know, the reason water, uh, the reason life exists on Earth is ice or water does something nothing else does. Everything on the planet, everything in the universe we know of, as it gets colder, it gets more dense. And water does too, right until it gets close to its freezing point, and then it gets less dense. And because of that, we get something called turnover, and water bodies freeze from the top down. So even if you had that extreme cold come in on like a polar vortex, and it froze a foot of water in your climate, it's not going to stay there. It's going to warm up. And it's going to get back above freezing, and the sun's going to come out, and you're going to start immediately melting that if you have the pond with a solar cover. You still need a fairly sizable pond, and you still need to get some significant depth to it. The greater the volume of water, the harder it is for it to freeze solid, even independent of depth, to a degree. So if you had a four-foot pond that was really big that had 15,000 gallons of water, it would be harder for that to freeze solid than, let's say, a five-foot pond that was only four by four, like a tank straight down. You know, and it was only holding, let's say, uh, 3,000 gallons of water. It's, it's less water to move in that direction. So those are the bits of advice I can give you based on what you said. If you have more information on this, um, follow up with it and give me like more of your budget, your space, et cetera. We'll see what we can do kind of picking this one apart because I love to help people put bodies of water in because nothing does more for productivity and self-sufficiency and habitat creation and stuff like that. So get with me on that. If you call it in, email me, TSPC in the subject line. Tell me you just did it so I know to kind of weed it out, ferret it out, or you can give me the information by email and I will uh, follow up next week for you because, again, this is something I want to encourage more of. Let's take another one, this one on hard water. Hey, Jack, this is Brett from Texas. I'm actually a licensed plumber in the state of Texas, and I'm calling about a uh, Thursday question with living with hard well water. Um, we actually have real hard water where I'm from, too. And a good solution to that, in addition to the water softener, like you mentioned, is a sediment filter before the softener. That'll help keep uh, a lot of other things that might come out of the well from causing issues with that softener. And another thing people need to know when they're getting a softener is they do tend to cause flow restriction. So if you have a lot of fixtures and a lot of people living in the home, a cheap box store water softener is probably going to give you a, a significant flow restriction. If you want to deal with that, for one or two people in the home, that's probably okay. But I know that wells typically have fairly low pressure already. So they need to make sure they get a quality water softener, higher rate of flow. Um, typically, a plumbing supply house would carry something like this. You can't get that great of a water softener from box stores like Home Depot and Lowe's. But uh, I just thought that would be helpful to other people. And also dealing with the iron, they do make a different um salt ion for for water softeners that you can use it's it usually is in a green bag and it says iron fighter on there but it's way more expensive than the salt that you can get um in the yellow bags the pellets and i recommend staying away from the blue bags personally because once those little rocks get small enough they can get sucked up into the suction line clog it up and stop your softener from working so I just thought maybe that would be helpful. 
Anyways, you guys uh, take care. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Okay, the thing that I'll add to this, and this won't be a very long addition for me, but yes, uh, water softener systems tend to knock down pressure, and even really good ones do. And I would completely concur with if you're going to spend the money to put a water softener system in, I would get a high-quality system, and I would get it professionally installed. I think it is worth the pay to get this done right, because it's going to affect you for a very long time. But the the pressure issue can be addressed with something called a pressure tank. Uh, we actually have multiple pressure tanks in our home because the home is rather large, and because over time the hard water in the, when this house was originally built, they didn't have a water softener, and some of the pipes are constricted. Really, the whole house could do with repiping, but that's a big job, and it's messy, and it's expensive, and I don't want to do it, at least not right now. Um, so. What we did, we put in these pressure tanks, and basically what they are is just a big metal tank, and inside them is a diaphragm that you fill up with air. And that diaphragm applies pressure, so when, you, when that tank gets full, it compresses that diaphragm, and when you open the faucet, that diaphragm is pushing on the water, and it ups your pressure. This is nice because it's actually a little bit of a water reserve. It's not a lot but it's a little bit of water reserve, so it, it's, it's good for that as well. So that's all I got to add to that one. Thanks for calling and to help out. And, folks, if you, are, if you hear someone ask a question or I talk about something and you want to call in and say, hey, this is what I do and this is what I would do, you know, consider it like being the, the, the mini-expert counsel, right? we got lots of folks out there that listen and know a lot of stuff. Never hesitate to call in and throw your two cents in and your experience on that issue, referencing back to a, a, a previous call or email or what have you. Next up, let's take a, a question on food storage, but for the people that are kind of paleo-keto. Hey, Jack. Darren here, an MSB member from New York. I'd like to know your thoughts on food storage items that are keto or at least low-carb friendly. Background is over the last couple of years, we've, there have been some changes, and we've moved to a new house with a smaller family, and that coupled with some other issues, I've let my preps and my pantry get far too shallow for my tastes. I've gotten over some of that funk I was in, and I'm now starting to get shit done again, but I'm in a bit of a new situation for us. We've gone keto-ish, so a lot of the foods that I would have stocked up on before are no longer appropriate. Beans, pastas, wheats, flours, canned veggies, canned chilies, etc., I can see we're in an emergency where we would be happy to have any of that, and we may need the higher carb counts, but then how does that jive with eat what you store, store what you eat? Are there options other than just home canning meats to store away? I admit to having a little analysis paralysis on this, and I'm probably overthinking it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for what you do. I don't get to listen every day, but at least a couple times a week, and I always come away inspired to do things just a little bit better. Take care, brother. Thanks. Okay, there's actually quite a bit more options than I think most people realize in this world. Um, Keith Snow and I did uh, an episode of the show not that long ago. It was episode 2305, so a few months back, three, four months back. Um, food storage for those that don't live on carbs alone. And Keith did a great job of breaking down a lot of the things that you can do to live more of this paleo, primal, keto lifestyle, and still store food. Here's some additional ideas. I don't know if we, I don't remember if we covered them there or not. Like, there's a lot of things that you can bring into your, your life um, that, that are protein, high fat, that store well without refrigeration. 
Uh, one would be sardines. Uh, and the, the ones I recommend are a brand called Matisse Gallego. I'll put a link in the show notes to the review that I did on those. And, and they are just like, I'm not going to say that like if you hate sardines, you're going to turn around and love these. I'm going to say if you can eat sardines, but you're not really that big of a fan, you might really like these. And so those store for five, six, seven years. And they're an easy thing to practice, eat what you store and store what you eat with. If, let's say, once every week or once every two weeks, for lunch, for instance, you have a salad and you incorporate sardines with a little bit of avocado. That I mean, that is, it's fantastic. And it's a high-fat, high-protein, and the brand is just such a high quality that, that it, it's just fantastic. You can look to canned cheeses and butters and canned cheese and butter powders and you can use those in your life or at least use them once in a while and you know you you you, you go to the refrigerator you're going to cook something you go to get the butter and there's a quarter stick of butter left and you were going to do something that was going to use more than that and you know, get one of the cans of canned butter out and use it and as you dwindle that supply replace it so those are ways to store high quality fats And I'll let you just reference, because we again, we did a whole show on this very topic. Again, episode 2305, link in today's show notes so you can go back and listen to that. And then if it gives you specific questions, get back with me and we'll cover that. I want to talk about a totally different way to look at this. Because preppers tend to prep for the big whatever it is in their head they're afraid of, the EMP or whatever. They, they tend to think bunker mentality. Even when they get out of the overall bunker mentality, they're still back to, well, it all has to store without refrigeration. I think one of the best investments anybody can make in their life, and it ain't going to sound like food storage at first. It will when I get to the second investment. But one of the best investments people can make for their homes is a quality generator. It doesn't have to be a very expensive inverter generator. I have a 7,500 starting watt, 6,000 running watt uh, Troy built generator that I paid like 600 bucks for at Lowe's. And if you watch, that stuff does go on sale and you can get deals on it. You could say it's a low end generator, but you know I go out every once in a while to make sure it's all right, add a little gas to it, drain, do some service on it. And that, that thing, I've had it since we, we, I bought it right when we moved to Arkansas. And it still starts with a single pull. And it runs, and I have never run so much on it at one time that it was like, I'm sorry, I don't have any more for you. And if you have that, which is a great preparedness item, and you have a deep freezer out in your garage, that freezer will hold with 60 gallons of gas in reserve, which is where we should be with our gas reserves anyway, As a freezer, it will hold for over a month because we only need to run it a few hours a day. So now, anything that goes in that freezer can be part of your preps. And you add a quality vacuum sealer to that, and you store what you eat, meat. The big thing is get good at labeling and develop an organizational system so that you are not eating the meat that you bought three weeks ago you know, or two weeks ago while there's an exact same cut of meat in the back that you can't find. And this is why there is no doubt that a deep freezer that's a chest-style freezer is more efficient. There is no doubt. No, I will, I will concede that over and over again. 
It is more efficient when you open it, the cold doesn't fall out. It stays in. I get it. Shouldn't be standing there looking at it anyway. I know in the summer sometimes standing in front of the deep freezer feels good. But really it's not a place to hang out. So it shouldn't be a big deal anyway. The stand-up deep freezers, when you open it, you can see and you can get to everything and you can just front merchandise like they do at a grocery store. That is the way to go. You do that and you get a, 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 a generator and now you store mostly meat if that's what you mostly eat. There's a lot you can do with vegetables and other things as well, but to me, that is a completely valid storage solution. What about when we have an EMP? Oh my God, I had a question about that today. It's like, just, I'm not answering this because that's not going to happen. Right? He, the guy was afraid to buy a gun safe with a digital lock. He's probably going to be mad at me now, even though I didn't name him, because he saw another safe manufacturer say that they're... Uh, digital locks were EMP-proof, meaning that a lot of other ones weren't. And I just said, an EMP is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, and then it's not going to happen. So we need to think about preparedness for the stuff that happens all the time to somebody somewhere in the world. And, and, and this is the type of thing that can address that. And now I want to talk about the economics involved in it. Recently, and I try not to buy feedlot beef any more than I have to, but you know what? It tastes damn good, and it's better than eating gruel. I was at Albertsons, and they had, I guess for the Super Bowl, bone-in New York strip, and these cuts were about an inch and a quarter thick, on sale for $3.99. I bought every bit of it I could get, and when the lady brought some more out, I bought it too. I saved so much money. They have, like, you know, how much you saved. Um, that they had to get a manager to approve letting me check out because I saved too much money. It was almost $200 over what it would have cost uh, buying it for, like, $12.99 a pound or whatever. And I brought it home, and I put two to a pack, and I vacuum sealed every bit of it, and I stacked that in my deep freezer. And that is a lot of beef, high-quality beef. And that is part of my food security. And, well, what if the power goes off? Well, first of all, for about 10 hours, I don't got to do shit because it's a full freezer. And wherever there's not food in there, there's bottles of ice. And I got a generator. And I got another generator. And I got a power inverter from a car. I'm good. I'm not worried about that. There's other inconveniences I'm worried about if the power goes off. Like, I'm going to be in much more in a hurry to run extension cords into my office and plug all my fish tanks in it so my fish don't die. That's the, that's the first thing I'm going to worry about. Then I'm setting up a room that either has heat or cold in it, depending on the time of the year it is. Then I'm throwing moving blankets over top of my refrigerators and freezers. And if six hours later the power's not back on... I'm going to start intermittently running each of my my freezers and refrigerators. And I'm not going to have to run them that long to keep them cold. So I think that's one of the biggest things you can do for yourself. And then listen to the Keith Snow episode. By the way, um, as, as I've announced before, I'm now doing a content exchange with Kim Commando. Uh, she has a number one radio show in the country on weekends uh, on electronics and technology and stuff like that. Because they're just really starting up her podcast side of things, she needs a staff to... Uh, to help her to do all the stuff she does, because this woman does so much more than just a single show. And so they can only commit to doing one 
segment a month. So I'm doing a segment a month for them. They're doing a segment a month for us. And, and she, they're hoping that we can go to two a month soon. Um, but the one I just did for them was on food storage. And as part of that, I took the ten, what I thought were the ten best episodes on food storage that we've done from our beginning up till now, going all the way back to episode 154 and ending with the 2305 episode I mentioned already. And if you ever want to access, like, just food storage stuff and the best we've done in ten years, uh, the survivalpodcast.com forward slash food will redirect to that. And I've added that page to the Welcome Center for new listeners as well. Uh, here's what's in there. Options for uh, storage methods of meats, fruits, and vegetables. Ten methods of storing food for modern survival. Four rules of storing food. Food storage for a better living today. Storing food the what, the how, and the why, the, the, why, the what, and the how. Uh, meals in a jar with Jennifer S. on starting out as a prepper. A practical, holistic approach to food storage. The basics of food storage. Food storage for modern survivalism. And food storage for those who don't live on carbs alone. And I'm, I knew there was a reason I was going to read that. Because I, I knew I was missing something. You can really do a lot and stay paleo with the long-term freeze-dried stuff because the number one thing I think you should be buying when it comes to mountain house and stuff like that is meats because it's so easy to do everything else without going specialized. Like, let's say you wanted beef stroganoff. So you can go to mountain house and buy a number 10 can of beef stroganoff, and they'll tell you how wonderful it is and how many meals you can get out of it. Well, Everything that you need to make beef stroganoff other than the beef, you know, noodles, cream, butter, all that stuff can be acquired canned, powdered, you know, dry noodles. Just you buy it in a box and it's good for two years the way it comes. I know we're staying paleo here, but hear me out. So the only thing I really need to make beef stroganoff that I can't easily store from non-specialized food is the beef. So why would I buy beef strip? Why would I just buy beef cubes so I can do so many other things with? That's the way to think. So that's another thing that, that you can add. And that made, what made me think of that was the Jennifer S. interview that we did where they were storing, basically taking the freeze-dried food and breaking that can open instead of leaving it there for 20 years and making individual meals like family-sized meals in a quart jar, two quart jars, and dump it in, add water, heat it up, and you're ready to go. So that's another thing you do. Lastly, on the paleo, primal, keto thing, primal and paleo-type diets are sustainable. Keto is not sustainable. Ketosis is a natural occurrence when you do carb-restricted diets. It's a goal of Atkins to get into ketosis. It's a goal of the protein power plant to get into ketosis. When we go into ketosis, our bodies are optimized for burning fat at that point, and it is not dangerous. I'm tired of hearing people say it is. I'm not even going to explain why it's not. You can go look it up and learn. Ketoacidosis is dangerous. Ketosis just simply means your body is living off its own fat reserves, which is a great way to go in the beginning. When you reach your goals or as you approach your goals, you're going to move into a sustainable eating lifestyle. And you're not going to stay completely uber ketosis. Now, keto-ish, if you are in the beginning and you are trying to lose the weight, you don't do keto-ish. You go all the way if keto is your plan. But eventually you get to a point where we just want to stay carb-restricted. There's a lot of options when it comes to, to legumes and things like that. If you're not trying to go paleo and you don't think you think legumes are the devil or whatever, that's different. But, you know, most of your, your things like black beans... Um, lentils, etc. When you take the fiber off, they're actually fairly low carb for small portions. 
Uh, and then that's a good way to have a small amount of carbs in the rest of your diet. So that's that's another thing you could do. So now now instead of storing the buckets of lentils and whatever, you know, we're storing, you know, a, a, a couple jars or something like that. And then when we do a portion for our meal, we're doing very small portions because it it is kind of interesting how much you enjoy some of these foods in small quantities with large amounts of meat and fat and still stay under the carb count where they're not going to have a marked impact on you. And there's things out there like we've just discovered black bean spaghetti at Costco. I like it. I'm not going to eat it every day. We're definitely going to control the portions and down to weighing it out of the package before we cook it. So we know we even if we ate every bit of it, we're not going to go over our carb limit. But look into those other aspects of things as well. Amaranth, quinoa, hemp seeds, small amounts, all that stuff stores really good in of itself. I've not tried lentil pasta yet. I didn't know that was a thing. Uh, but apparently it's about the same as black meat and carbs, and people said they liked it better when we posted it on social media. Uh, so it's a long answer to a somewhat simple question. Hope it was helpful. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack and TSP. This is Josh with the EfficientHomesteader.com. I'm just driving down the road here, and I drove by a, a brush pile, a burn pile. They're burning. It looks like the city's burning some brush. And I was thinking, is it better to spend the fuel for equipment to masticate or shred brush, or do you think it's better to burn it in the sense of emissions, carbon emissions, and long-term sequestering of carbons if we use that shredded material as mulch. Just uh, wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks for everything you do. Have a good day. I mean, out of the gate, I think wood chips are magic. I really do. I think what, what wood chips do for soil, it could only be described as magic. I've given a lot of information recently about using, you know, old moldy feed, dried molasses, uh, organic matter, straw, etc., and, and then using kind of a lasagna effect and topping with wood chips. But the truth is, if you had an area that you wanted to garden in, and you were like, I don't need a garden this year, I want a garden next year, and you had somebody bring a truckload of wood chips in and spread them out a foot deep on the footprint of that garden, there wouldn't be jack shit you had to do next spring when you planted, except just pull back the wood chips and start planting. The soil will be beautiful. That's it. It is remarkable how much material it takes to make a couple yards of wood chips. In your head, you see this big tree, and you think, if I chip that sucker since i got to cut it down anyway, I'm going to end with a bunch of wood chips. We had some, uh, some hemlocks and some, I think they were dogwoods, that got really damaged in a winter storm in Pennsylvania. And they were kind of in an island, and there was other trees coming back, and I made the decision to take them out, and we rented a wood chipper. And they weren't huge trees, but they were, there was a lot of material. And there was some trunk material that we kept as firewood because you just couldn't get it into the chipper. But we tri tripped, like, everything we could. We thought we'd have this huge pile of wood chips. This is a long time ago. I want to live in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's definitely a lot of things I know now I didn't know then. So I had this big pile of wood chips. We barely had enough to redo the mulch and the little tree island thing in the backyard with it. And it was thinly done. And it was like, Wow. And you realize this is, you know, and I worked as a tree trimmer, but I never really paid attention. I was a high school kid. I worked a summer for a Splenda as a kid that was skinny and 
wasn't afraid of shit, so I'd climb up the trees and top trees and stuff like that. And uh, so, I mean, I guess intrinsically I knew that, but when you don't, when you're not the one that has to worry about it, and you're just a part-time worker, I guess you don't pay attention to how much gets shot out of the shooter in the truck. But that's why you do it in in that environment is because otherwise, how would you deal with the material? So there's there's there is a case to be made that for a homeowner, chipping wood not making a lot of sense, and. I'm in that state where I have just enough material that I really should buy a good wood chipper. But, you know, the good wood chipper is not the $400 wood chipper. Don't buy that one. It's like the $1,000, $1,200 wood chipper. And I don't really have enough to really, you know, and I've had several years now where I've had a lot of material. And I did exactly what you said. You know, I put it in a big pile and I set it on fire. I don't think that's the highest use of that material. I absolutely think... That material, as wood chips, is incredibly value, valuable. Now, there is also efficiency of scale. So I get my wood chips from a place down the road for me just a few miles called Silver Creek Materials. There's truckload after truckload after truckload of material driven into that place. And they have a serious chipper. Like, you throw a tree in it. I'm like an honest-to-God whole tree in there, and it's gone. And I think that that type of equipment, running at the type of... Because they're not turning it on, grinding up one truckload of stuff, and then turning it off. And then turning it on... Like, what they're doing, they're, they're, they're batching it, you know? And they're, they're going through a massive amount really, really fast. And yeah, that machine's big, and it uses more energy... But I, I think it actually probably uses a lot less energy per yard produced. And I think that's a very effective use of energy. And it's material that what would happen to it otherwise would be burned. I think burning a pile of wood doesn't really hurt. But if you were burning massive piles all the time, I think you're going to create air quality issues. I don't think there's a carbon issue there, even if you buy in a global warming, because it's carbon neutral. It really is. The carbon that's in there came from the atmosphere. It's carbon. It's carbon neutral as, as anything. Um, so I, it's not that I'm worried about that. It's that, you know, charcoal can be useful in soil, but tree matter is where it's all at. And that's how the forest does it. It has a lot of fungus to do the breakdown, does the fungal breakdown. Um, so I, I think... That it is a good use of energy and time and money done at the right scale. But I think for homeowners, you really have to think about, is it worth it from a standpoint of your money, your time, and your energy, and you're never going to be as efficient? I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying that I want to do it, and I can't make myself. Now, if I had a different type of property, and I was running a chainsaw every other week, I probably would have by now, and I probably would have stepped up even a little bit higher level in like you know like a two thousand dollar machine. And that's it. I mean, you still like, is it really worth it? We were making wood chips with the slash that we had at the Perma Ethos Farm in West Virginia years ago, and it was again to the point like all of this effort. Now what we had is a PTO driven chipper, so you had to back the tractor up and get that going and drag stuff, and uh, it just didn't really ever seem to be worth it. In a, in a time efficiency equation. So I think it has a lot to do with what's your chipper, what are you chipping, how efficiency is that with the chip. There's a big difference between chipping, you know, 
prunings from dogwoods and evergreens and shipping live oak. Live oak's freaking hard, even when it's when it's green. So I think that you have to balance all of that. But on a large scale, I think wood chipping is probably the best way to go because the results are going to be able to create so much new, uh, so much health in soil that they're going to be able to grow more matter than you chipped. For every pound of biomatter you've chipped, you're probably able to grow 10 pounds of new biomatter. And I think that calculus works. Good question, one that makes you think. Let's take another one, this one on tool ownership. Hi, Jack. This is Robert from Utah. I'm calling with a question regarding marking tools for when you're working in a multi-person shop. Details. I just recently got a job as fleet maintenance, and most of the tools that they provide are either worn out or straight up missing. I was wondering about getting my own tools, but I want to make sure that they also don't go walking off and that I can distinguish them from the tools that the company owns. I was wondering if you had any suggestions. I thought about engraving, but that's a lot of engraving, and I need to get an engraver. I've also thought about painting um, with just some spray paint. Any suggestions you have, any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Bye. So, yeah, um, let's start off with how you prevent the problem from becoming a problem in the first place. And that is that if you're going to invest money in your tools, um, then you should invest money in how they're stored. And so you should look at, you know, at least a decent size, probably rolling toolbox. And, you know, you don't have to go out and spend a thousand dollars on a toolbox. You can get a, you know, a smaller chest size one. There's a really nice one at Costco that's been on sale for $2.99. Uh, we actually ended up buying one. We used it as a TV stand for out, outside in the outdoor kitchen. Uh, and I've thought about buying another one just to have it as a toolbox. It's locking. You don't even have to go that nice. But it should be, you know, and it might, maybe it's not even rolling. Maybe it's, a, 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 you know, like a, a chest that sits on a shelf or something. But it needs a lock. And then you need to develop the discipline that if I'm not using a tool, it doesn't need to be out. Like, when I'm done with that tool, it goes back in my toolbox, and it stays locked. Because people will permanently, accidentally borrow your shit. That's just all there is to it. That said, most of the time, tool walkaways end up happening like this. I need a screwdriver. There's one there. Picks it, pick it. Same way pens do. You know, uses it, sets it down, doesn't even think about it, doesn't even realize they took it. It, it happens, you know, especially when everything looks the same. So marking it in some way is good because at least it keeps honest people honest. They don't they don't accidentally actually accidentally borrow it permanently, right? Um, and it does also kind of make it where the people that aren't so honest know they can't 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 use the excuse that they didn't realize it was yours. One of the easiest ways to do this is colored tape. Because when you catch someone taking the tape off, you know you can't trust that person ever again. So, I mean, yellow or red or something like that, and you just run a band of tape around it. Uh, paint is a little harder to get off, but I actually kind of want to find out who wants to take the tape off. I do. Uh, so that would be another way to... One thing you could do is pick a brand maybe that not really anybody's using there. I've already given my thoughts on no, don't don't give eighty thousand dollars of your life earnings to the Snap-on truck. That's just stupid. Um, but 
you know, look around, what is everybody using, and then click a, pick a quality brand that really no one else is would be another way, and stick to that brand of tools. And, you know, you didn't tell me, again, like what kind of tools, how much in budget, what have you, but those are my basic ideas. Engraving is great because you can never get rid of it, but let me tell you about the people that steal tools in work environments. They tend not to then keep them there. When they accidentally borrow them permanently, they also accidentally take them home permanently. That's generally where things walk off and disappear from a nefarious level. So there's only so much you can do about that. There is dishonest people everywhere you go, and that's why the best thing is a locking uh, chest. And if you go into any mechanic shop, guys loan each other tools all the time, but they know who has what where. Um... I actually did work as a mechanic for just a little while in spite of a meme that I shared on Facebook today when I got out of the Army, and I had a, a decent set of tools for, for that job. I didn't want to do it for very long, so I never really invested in it. But I, I used a, uh, a thing I learned in the military from tool, uh, tool clerks where I had these little discs with a number on it, and if you took a tool, then your disc with your number that was written down in my notebook went in that spot where that tool goes, And you know you're not you're not off the hook till till you get that chip back for me and and what have you and uh, and I know you have it because it's a 17 right here and you're 17 in my little notebook that I also keep in my tool chest and where's my shit you know and then it's very hard to, oh I gave it back to you no you didn't because I would have given you back your chip and crossed you out of the book because that's what I do and so that's you know a, another way to kind of if you are going to loan have some sort of like You still have this in tilt, right? Not, I'll put it back in your box when I'm done. Um, every, and I, you know, I've, I've worked around maintenance shops one way or another a lot of my life as well. And every place I've ever been, mechanics, etc., they keep their shit closed when they're not actively using it. So that's, that's the best piece of advice I can give. Anybody else has, else has any thoughts on this one, call in, write in, comment on the blog, what have you. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Jake here in Michigan. Curious what your thoughts are on the growing trend of carry pistols or duty pistols with mounted micro red dots and also things like the um, the Roland Special, either built off with, like, Glock 19s, FNs, 1911s, the gro especially the growing trend of red dot sites, compensators to match mounted lights for carry and defense pistols. Thanks for all you do. Well, I'm going to say a bunch of good stuff about them, and then I'm going to end with why I won't do it with one of my guns, and I won't carry one. And, and people may agree or disagree with that. And, and I think almost all of the issues that you can come up with that are negatives will be solved in the very near future, and they're getting better and better. I absolutely can tell you that the average shooter will shoot better with a red dot sight. The people that won't are so good it doesn't matter. Okay. The average shooter will shoot faster and, and acquire targets faster with a red dot sight. Basically, it's eliminating one of the four points of alignment that you need to have to make a good shot. And, and, and that's 25%. And I've shot them, and I am a good shooter with iron sights. Uh, I am an old-school shooter. I'm so old I use a 1911 most of the time, right? But when I've... Picked them up, and I always didn't think I'd like them. I got to admit, they are awesome. They are awesome at the range. 
People say, well, a battery can fail. You know, you should, if it's your carry gun or your duty gun, you don't go cheap. And, you know, some of the better sites, a battery can keep the damn thing illuminated 24-7 for four years. So change your damn battery once a year. It ain't that expensive. And you can just take that variable out. Um, it's another point of failure. Yeah, but let's say it doesn't light up. You, you know, it, I haven't seen one yet where you can't see right through it and still use your iron sights. So I, I don't really see that. People say, well, it's another thing that could get hung up, you know, when you're drawing it or whatever. I guess, but yet, you know, that's one of those, like, you're looking for a reason to have a problem with it. Uh, as this becomes more common, we're going to have more and more holsters that are specifically designed to deal with the fact that most people are carrying this way. There are so many advantages. There's no doubt this is going to become the dominant thing when it comes to handgun sights. It just is. And if you don't believe it, go get a good gun with a good sight, borrow it from a buddy, rent it from a range, and go shoot it. And you'll get it. Well, then, with all that said, why does Jack say no? Because there is one variable that they have not figured out, and I don't know if they ever will. And it specifically affects those of us that live here in the South. And if you've lived in the South, especially the Southeast, Mid-South, etc., you know this time of year. You get out of your car, and if you wear glasses, you can't see anything. Why? Because that glass fogs like that. You come out of an office into the outdoors, and what happens? That glass fogs like that. This is not, it might happen. This is, it is going to happen. It happens all the time. It happens constantly in this climate. That it, and a lot of people don't even realize it if you don't wear glasses. You don't even think about it. But if you wear glasses, you're, you're painfully aware of this happening. And it is... I think if you if you don't wear glasses and you don't live in this climate, or even if you do and you've never even thought about it, I don't think people understand what I mean by instantly. I mean you open that you forget that it's humid out. You open the door of your truck, and before your foot hits the ground, you can't see shit. Okay, there is a a very good chance that if you ever need to use your carry gun, that you're going to be exiting or entering a building. Or exiting or entering a vehicle. Now, it's not guaranteed. It's not the most likely scenario, but it is a highly likely scenario. And if it happens during this time of climate in the South, when you draw that weapon, you can't see through it to use your iron sights because it's going to be completely hazed over. Now, if they invent a technology that's reliable, that makes that not happen... And you can put all the anti-fog shit, you, trust me, as it got some more glasses since I was four years old, you can get all the anti-fog bullshit talk you want, you know, clean it with this, and it won't, no bullshit. In that, when we hit that time of the year, it's going to fog instantly. I don't care if you put, I don't know, freaking virgin tears on it, it is still going to fog up. So as long as that's the case, I wouldn't trust it. Now, people would say, well, it's only a certain time of the year. We have weird changes in weather. It was humid as hell yesterday here. It was humid as hell in 72 degrees, and it's in freaking high 30s right now. So you don't ever know when it's going to happen. But I also don't believe in, well, I'm going to carry this way for nine months out of this way. No. Have you carry this however you carry? Have you trained this however you carry? So I want to say yes on this, 
But that is the one variable that has yet to be eliminated, and, and, and I don't find it to be an acceptable variable because you, you carry because you don't know when or the circumstances under which you're going to need to have that weapon. You know, if you knew that, you'd only carry the one time you needed to. And you'd be able to cherry pick exactly what you're going to have. Now, I will say what mitigates all of this is it the average engagement, especially with a, a licensed carry or concealed carry or constitutional carry citizen, is about seven feet. And I know we, we drill and we teach the importance of sight alignment and See that front sight, and you know, but I'm going to tell you when I'm shooting seven feet, I don't see sights, I see target, and I go to instinct. So I don't even think it would matter, but I'm also not taking the sights off my gun, and I'm not going to be in a situation where it could be that my sight is completely unusable to me. I'm not worried about the battery feeling, I'm not worried about losing, I think they're very good about not losing zero. But I am worried about not being able to see through the damn thing. And if you live in Florida, Georgia, Texas, Alabama, Louisiana, and you wear glasses, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So that's my only problem with them at this point. And they may develop a technology that basically makes that never happen. And then I'll be looking for one. Uh, with that, let's go. We have one more question today. Hey, Jack. This is Wade from Georgia. And I had a quick question about mead making. Um, how long do you leave? your mead in your primary after it stops fermenting details i'm making my first batch of mead and i use an airlock and it quit bubbling after about 10 days and i was wondering how much longer i should leave it in my primary and how long you leave it in your secondary once you transfer it thanks for all you do there really isn't a specific answer as in do it this many days um the good news is with the exception of just a few things where you have a sediment that you really don't want it sitting on for very long, it doesn't hurt if it goes longer than it needs to. So you might have a certain adjunct or something you've put in there. You just don't want it in contact with it for more than 10 days, and then you go ahead and rack it early. You can go to a secondary pretty much as soon as the active fermentation stops. And I'm not even talking about, like, you sit there and watch the airlock, and 30 seconds go by, and there's one bubble. And then you wait, and in 30 seconds, wait, no bubble. And a minute goes by, and it starts lifting a little bit, and you know, two minutes go by, there's a bubble. I don't mean that. I mean, when you look at it, and it's not just going, you can go ahead and rack to a secondary right away if you want to. And if you're doing my method with uh, three pounds of honey to the gallon, uh, that would be when you would go ahead and top up to a full gallon. Secondary? As long as you don't let water run out of the airlock, you can let that thing sit in a secondary for as long as you want to. The longer, in some ways, the better. It's aging while it's sitting. That's a good thing. And you want it to be completely clear. Now, the answer I'm supposed to give you is that you take hydrometer readings. And when it's fermented down to X percent, you go ahead and react to a secondary. And when it's fermented all the way, and you can hydrometer read it, and you can tell that there's not any residual sugar that's still going to ferment, then you bottle it. All right? Now, that's not what I do. When it goes clear in the secondary, I bottle it. That, that, that's my rule for the secondary. And when it goes clear in the secondary, and I get off my ass, then I bottle it. So it's not just is it clear, but... 
Is it clear in the secondary? Do I feel like bottling? Because it can be sitting there. Clear. I'm sitting here looking at one, two, three, four, five bottles of mead right now um, that all really need to go into a secondary, and I might get it to it this weekend. And I've got several other bottles that, that when I say one-gallon batches, I've got a couple other bottles that are crystal clear ready to drink, and I just don't feel like bottling right now. As long as the airlock stay good or balloon stays on the bottle, depending on what you're using, it's fine. The longer, in many instances, the better. But a general rule of thumb, 14 to 21 days, you unless something went wrong, you got some kind of stuck, weird fermentation going on or something, you should be able to go into a secondary. And 60 days, you should be able to bottle. A lot of people say six months and crazy stuff like that. 60 days with small batch, if you can't bottle at that point, something didn't go right. You got a stuck ferment or something going on. And... You can usually do it fast enough. I can generally, if I give a little bit of nutrient feed in the middle of the primary, uh, I can generally get a batch of meat done in five weeks. I can do it faster, but I have to do stuff, and I have to make it happen. But, I mean, in general, my, my meads with the method I use finish out in about five weeks if I want to go that fast. Some fruits will have a much longer secondary ferment. You really want no activity when it goes in the bottle or you're going to end up with a carbonated mead. And the problem with a carbonated mead, when you didn't mean to do it, is it could either be very, very faint, like it's really not enough. It's like a flat carbonated beverage. Like you're still, you, get, it, you could tell it was carbonated, but it's not anymore. Because you don't know what you have, right? So you can either get that, and then it kind of tastes like an unfinished cidery thing. It's not good. If you've ever had Riumidi Lambrusco wine, which is like a gutter wine, um, it has that, like, almost like orange juice went bad in the refrigerator thing going on. And you don't like that. Or you can get lucky, and you can make a nice, fine, sparkling mead that's about as carbonated as a champagne. And I mean, if you're gonna, if you're gonna carbonate a mead, you don't do this mild carbonation thing. You want to pour it and you want to see bubbles going and the top fizzing like a good champagne. That's that. And some meads are great that way and some are terrible, right? But if a good one, so you could get lucky. But the thing that usually happens if you bottle it before it's done is you end up where when you open it, you get an avalanche of foam everywhere and it sucks. This is a good reason to do your mead in either screw-top wine bottles okay, or swing-top beer bottles. Those are my two favorite types of bottles. One, because I can get the screw-top wine bottles for free, and I can get the, the swing-top beer bottles cheap. Because if you, what you do is you bottle your mead, and about two weeks into it, take a bottle and open it slowly. And if it goes, psh, oh, damn it. It doesn't happen often, but damn it. But what you can do then is you pull those bottles and put them in a place and every day vent them. And you're going to end up with a carbonated mead, but you won't get where it evap you know, explodes into oblivion. When you can open it and it just gives you a little, then leave it be. It, you, you've, you've gotten through it. You're going to get a nice carbonated mead. Uh, if you open it and nothing happens, close it back up. And you're good. But stuff will get in there. No, it won't. I didn't say sneezing it when you opened it. 
So that's kind of your little check, you know, just, just, and I would even say wait a couple weeks. I usually a couple days after I bottle a meat, I'll go up if it's in a screw top or a flip top and open it. And if anything's going to happen, usually it's started. And if you get on it right away and you vent it every day for a couple weeks, you'll probably end up with a pretty nice carbonated meat. So that's how you save it if you screwed it up. In most situations, it's not going to be a problem. The other thing you can do, since we generally make meat in one gallon batches in the school of thought, let's say you open the bottle. Let's say that mead has a little pst to it. And you don't want to deal with this. Throw it in the refrigerator. It'll shut the yeast flat down and then just drink that mead young. That's, that's the other option you have in that situation. So, hopefully that answers your question. I know it's a little bit convoluted, but that's how to go. With that, if you like the show and the work that we do, remember one of the ways you can support us to become a member to do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. And click on members and uh, sign up, save money, support the show all at the same time. The other way you can help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. I have something for you today that we talked about on Tuesday. Um, I had mentioned that as much as I love indoor lighting and stuff like that for starting plants, like the best, healthiest plants I've ever started I've started outdoors in a greenhouse. And I mentioned the Flower House, Spring House line of greenhouses. And uh, I got quite a few emails from people because I just basically linked to, like, here's all the stuff they make. And they're like, my God, they make a million things. Like, what would what exact model would you buy if you wanted to start plants in a greenhouse from them? And the one that I would buy is the Flower House 300. So that's the one I have uh, for review for you today. It's about seven by seven. It's not quite uh, a seven foot, foot footprint, but just consider it that uh, in your head to kind of figure out the space you need for it. And uh, this is one of the best made pop up style greenhouses you can get. I, I go into a lot of detail in my review today. It's a longer review than most of them. If you want to read it, basically what I want to get across to people is like if you're in Michigan, and you think you're going to grow an, an, an orange tree in this thing through the winter. You're not. It's going to die. If you live in a place where it gets down to 15 degrees and you put a bunch of peppers and tomatoes in there without any kind of a heat source, uh, it's going to die. If, if you take a, uh, a Rubbermaid garbage can, stick it in there, and think it's going to warm up in the sun and get you through a 15-degree night, you're, it's not. Everything's going to die. Like it, it is good for what it's good for. Here's what's nice about it. At about 40 square feet, it's big enough to put... Easily four plastic, typical you know, like box store shelves in, and you can you can start hundreds of plants in that space, even in big four inch pots. Very well organized as well. You got plenty of room to do that, but it's still really small. So a small like 750 watt um, ceramic heater that you plug in, so you have to be getting electricity if you want to do this, will keep your plants alive. Now, if you live in a climate where you're going to have to run that heater 60 days in a row for 60 days while you're starting plants, get racks, get lights, do it inside. If you live in a climate like a lot of us live in, where over 60 days of starting seeds in the spring, you might get five days where it goes below actual freezing, then that math works that it's still economically a viable solution to do with electric heat. You can also do it with a propane heater. What I don't like about propane heaters is you can only go so low on them. They don't have a thermostat, and they run constantly. Where with an electric heater, you can set it to its lowest setting, 
And once it gets up to temperature, it stops. So it doesn't run constantly all night long. The other step you can take with any of these small greenhouses, and again, I like small ones for starting seeds in, is you get some cheap moving blankets. The big pattern, like I said, they belong in your life anyway. There's so many things they do. You throw a couple of those, bungee straps, whatever, on the roof. You don't even have to worry about the sides. You put that on the roof and you put heat in there, and you can get through even very cold nights. And the last thing is, let's say all of a sudden, man, it's a front coming in, and for two days, it's going to be freaking teams for the highs. And I don't want to run that much heat. It's not that much stuff. They can go without a lot of light for a couple days. And since you've limited your size and how many, you, you know, you make the trip and you go out and you bring all the plants in. You put them on the floor in the kitchen. You put them in the garage, whatever. And you, you throw a couple floor lights on them that wouldn't be enough to grow, but it gives them some light. And when that front passes, they go back out in the greenhouse. And if you had to do that three days in a row because it was going to be warm enough during the day, but too cold at night, you could do it. It, it legit, you'd get be pissed, but when you got through, you'd be like, that was great. So, like, I, I, I see it as limited to the seed starting thing. I see this as the best of the best for doing that. It's about the perfect sweet spot size where you actually can get in there and do what you need to do. You're not going to hang out in there all day long or anything. But again, with these, the one Achilles heel they have is ice. Snow, I've had snow pretty much fall off them, but uh, ice sticks... And I've had some of these in the past that got destroyed because the ice stuck to them and they fell. But again, this one's small, so if when you have that kind of weather come in, if you just go out and go inside, knock it off with your hand, that's not going to happen. If you're running heat, it's going to melt. It's not going to happen. But if you have an ice storm coming in and you throw the moving blankets on top of it, then you know it can accumulate on there and not melt. So you got to think about that. If you have a place with concrete slab this thing can go, that will help. That slab will get hot during the day, and it will keep it warmer in there overnight to a degree. But I would never put a slab in for it. So I think this is a great little greenhouse. That's what it's good for, starting plants more than anything else. It's not a year-round thing, and that it folds up and it can be put away. So I think there's a lot of good here, and it is what I would recommend. And a lot of you asked, so I wanted to provide... Uh, the information on it. And again, my review is very in-depth. This is one of those ones where people might have questions. Never hesitate to send me an email and say, hey, you, I, want, I have a question about this product. Um, you know, some of the stuff I might make a quarter if you buy it. Honest to God. I mean, the, the commissions aren't high. I will still help you. I will still help you because the fact that people shop through my links matters so much to me that I've used my job to help you even on the small purchases, you know. And so I will always help you, TSPC on the subject line. And if you put in there something like TSPC, you know, Amazon item, I, I will know that it's something like that, and I'll kind of bring it forward, and I will always do what I can to help you in those situations because it's my job. With that, we have come to the end of another show. Time for our song of the day. Song of the day, uh, again, by Laurie McKenna. We're having Laurie McKenna week. And this is like the one song I actually knew by Laurie McKenna. I've heard it before. It's called People Get Old. I say John Arnold has done a good job of uh, winning me over to old Lori. I, I really was never a huge fan of hers. Uh, I did always like this song. This song was written for her father. He was like 88 when she wrote it. And um, she grew up, I think she was six when her mom died. 
And her father raised her and her siblings uh, as a single father uh, in, I think, Massachusetts or Vermont or somewhere. Vermont, I think, is where. And uh, she, she didn't move to Nashville as she was building her career in country music, which was would have been very beneficial, but still she could keep an eye on her father. But this 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 song talks about you know being a, a young kid and having your dad be so strong and virile and twirling you around on his arm and stuff like that, and, and kind of always seeing him that way in your head, and then realizing one day, not only is he not that old anymore, I'm older than that. I'm older than the way I remember him. So people get old, and the people we love get old is the theme of this song. But so do we is the kind of unspoken message. Like, it's the interpretive message of this. And you will hear the line in this that they say, youth is wasted on the young. I don't really think that. I think there's a, 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 a really valid component to that statement, that a lot of times the young do not realize the value that they have in their lives. But I think the bigger statement is so many of us waste so much of our lives. We waste so much of the time we have. Because as we get older and we become more in touch with our mortality, you start to have thoughts like, I'm not ready to go yet. I still have so much to do, so much to experience, so much to see. But every year you realize this year seems to have gone faster than the last. And what seems like so far away when you're 20, being 80, Seems pretty close when you're 50. 80 seems pretty close when you're 50. And 80 feels pretty old. And all that I can say when you start having thoughts like that is, good. Good. Because it makes you value the time you have to be with people, to help people, to do something important, to make the most of that dash they'll put between those years when you die It makes it more real, and it makes it more important, and it makes it less likely that you'll waste it through inaction or doing stupid shit. People get old. We all do. We all do. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Someone said is wasted on the young Spilled every last drop of time that summer in the sun My daddy had a Timex watch Cigarette in his hand and a mouthful of scotch Spinning me around like a tilted world on his own I see sneak rain, winters bring snow Kids come on in before your supper gets cold Collection plates and daddy's bell fold And that's how it goes Live long enough People get old I sat up brown beside him in the cabaret truck Going 30 miles an hour down a side Talking about the fish we caught And I'm older now than he was then If I could go back in time I would in a second To his beat up blue jeans And a t-shirt with the sleeves cut off Houses need paint Winters bring snow Kids growing up And sneaking out the window Hitting every small town dirt road And that's how it goes 
Get sold and that's how it goes. 